You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. So James chapter 3, starting in verses 13 through 18. Uh, let's start reading right now. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we, last week we learned about the tongue and how, you know, James, and before that we learned about how you know, what is faith without works? And, you know, that faith is dead. And so James is kind of creating this like uh, almost like a runway for us to get to this point here. And then he's going to continue to, to as we get into James chapter four next week, he'll continue to push the same understanding. But, you know, he talks about works and how you have to have this true faith. And if you have true faith, then it's evidence in your works. And then we talked about the tongue and how if you're able to control your tongue, right, you're a perfect man able to control your whole body. But then yet, we can't control our tongue. Why? Because it is a restless evil. But we learned, right, that our tongue can be, right, whenever we think about it differently, whenever we're bringing it under submission to the Lord uh, and to what he wants for us. But here in this passage, one commentator said that in order to have right actions, you have to have right thoughts. Um, and so today what we're looking at is wisdom, right? Because James, at the very beginning, he says this, what uh, what does he tell us about the one who is wise and understanding? That they must prove it by having good conduct done in the meekness of wisdom. So another translation says to prove it that you have wisdom by living an honorable life and doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. And so this is what James is talking about is this wisdom from above, not from below, right? Not this that is earthly, spiritual, unspiritual, demonic, right, anti-God, anti-Christ, but instead this wisdom, this understanding that comes from above. And so my, what, what I'm trying to prove today is this, is that when you have the right posture before the Lord, as we're about to see, and, and you've heard me talk about before, but when you have that, then you have a life full of wisdom. Then you have a life that, as James would say, right, is, is peace and gentle and, and willing to yield, as another translation says. And so this is what I'm trying to, in a way, prove to you today. So the first question to be asked is this, how does wisdom help us to be meek? Right, so if we look at the passage, right, it says right there, done in the meekness of wisdom. And so here's, so what is meekness, right? We, we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, if you can go back and look, how meekness was this teachable spirit that you are able, that you are willing to learn, that you come to God, right, in poor in spirit, those, right, for those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God, meaning you come to God saying, God, I don't have it all together. God, I don't know everything. And so, Lord, I need you. And so then he gives us, right, we inherit the kingdom. We are able to then really live truly uh, the life that he wants for us. But here, I want us to see a different side of meekness, because the imagery in this 
word is like finding a horse caught in the wild but is now tamed, right? Tamed enough to where a child could lead this massive horse that could kill and that has killed, you know, in, in, million, or in a bunch of wars in the past, right? Horses were, were scared. You don't want to go up against a horse. A horse is strong, right? But yet, when a horse is tamed, you can see a child leading this horse. You can see a child leading it because the horse is now gentle, right? So this meekness is like this controlled strength. It's this, I was once chaotic, I was once out of control, but now because of the Lord, I am now under his control, right? Now I am meek, now I am gentle. Um, One commentator, his name's Martin R. Vincent, says this, is that the meekness of a Christian comes from a recognition of their own inferiority as a creature in relation to the creator, especially as a sinful creature in relation to a holy God. In contrast to the pagan idea of self-assertion, the Christian virtue of meekness emphasizes self-abasement. In terms of God, meekness accepts his dealings without complaint or resistance, meaning whatever God you have for me, I will take it. Lord, you, you want me to be tested. You want me to go through this. Lord, I will take it. Why? Because I know who I am in regards to you. So then he continues. He says, in terms of, or he says, uh, in, in terms of God, meekness accepts his dealings without complaint or resistance, recognizing them as good and wise. In terms of other people, those around us, meekness accepts opposition, insults and provocation as God's way of chastening us due to the infirmity and corruption of sin. In this way, the meek person patiently endures the attacks of sinners, forgives and restores those who err against them, and remains humble in the face of temptation, always considering their weaknesses." Right When all of our ideas, when all of our mind is set on how strong we are, on all we know, on all we've done, on all of who we are, right, then we are not being a meek person. Meekness is not what describes us, right? But when we understand our weaknesses, right, this language is all in the Bible, right? In my weakness, then I am strong, right? Like John the Baptist said, I must decrease so he may increase, right? They all understood they were nothing, but God was everything. And so here, right, is that when you think about wisdom, right, what do you first think about, right? Is it the older gentleman or lady in your life who just has all of the right answers and has been through life a long time and has learned a lot. And so is, is that what you think of when you say wisdom? Or is your definition of wisdom what, you know, I learned growing up, which is knowledge is receiving information, but wisdom is applying information, right? So it's like you can learn all you want, but if you're not applying what you're learning, then you are not wise, right? This is what we would say the world would say is wisdom, or maybe you have read great philosophers and leader, or read leadership books or listened to podcasts and got wisdom from them. Uh, but I want us to consider that, many of those, that though many of those teachings are helpful, they are limited in their ability to change our lives truly, right? These books, these gurus, these philosophers can only get us so far in only very, on, in my, what I would say, shallow waters. And I mean that none of these teachings can give you the knowledge to be saved. None of these teachings 
can give you the knowledge that leads to the ability to overcome habitual sins in your life. The knowledge that leads to true life. And so let's look at what the Bible says about wisdom. The Bible has many things to say about wisdom, but the book of Proverbs, right, is known as the book about wisdom. And so let's look at some different passages in the Old and New Testaments when it says wisdom. So in Proverbs, Proverbs 9 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Or instead of insight, some versions say good judgment or understanding, right? So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of God is good judgment and good understanding. Um, So from the very beginning, right, the foundation of wisdom is fearing the Lord. And so what does this mean to fear the Lord, right? We've talked maybe a few, 10 house church mentioned a few times, but like there's a lot of different understandings of what it means to fear the Lord. And so uh, to help us, right, there's a few uh, pastors and we even look at Jesus's words of what a good way to think about when it comes to the fear of God. So a guy named Oswald Chambers wrote a great devotional book called Utmost for His Highest, says this about the fear of God. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I loved that, right? When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. A pastor in, uh, I think it's North Carolina, South Carolina, Kevin DeYoung, great writer, says this, There is no sin so prevalent, so insidious, and so deep as the sin of fearing people more than we fear God. God. And then Matthew, Jesus in Matthew 10, 28 says this, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so how does fear bring wisdom? When I say fear, what are we saying, right? Is think about if a child, right, from one aspect, if a child fears the punishment of parents, they will not do something or they will be doing something, right? You know mom's coming in. You know dad's coming in. You're going to stop what you're doing or you're going to start doing something you know you should have been doing all along. Um, But, and you may think, right, that we must fear God because, or some may think, right, okay, so we must fear God because he will strike us. Well, then, right, people will say, well, then it will lead me to do secret stuff, right? Then, and then if all I'm doing is fearing God and I'm scared of him, then I'm just going to try to hide from him and live this sort of way that isn't, you know, what I would say a healthy way. So there's two sides of fear, right, that I think is important here. And so I'm not saying that, right, because even if you could you try to hide from God, you can't, right? Nothing is hidden from God. And so there should be this understanding of who God is, how holy he is. I talked a lot about holiness and and had a friend come in and preach on holiness, but just a reminder, uh, author R.C. Sproul wrote this in his book, The Holiness of God. says this, the idea of holiness is so central to biblical teaching that it is said of God, holy is his name. His name is holy because he is holy. He is not always treated with holy reverence. His name is tramped through the dirt of this world. It functions as a curse word, a platform for the obscene. That the world has little respect for God is vividly seen in the way the world regards his name. No honor, no reverence, no awe before him. And so when we don't see God as holy, when we don't fear him, we care little for his commands. 
right? Like look in your life, right? Like you, you want to see how wisdom is played out in your life, right? When you think of God as just this lovey-dovey God, right, that the American church has done well to create because of this opposite extreme of like this hellfire brimstone God with no love. And so we keep going from one extreme to the other, right? And I'm trying to help you say, hey, if you want wisdom in your life, if you want good conduct done in the meekness of wisdom, then you have to have both sides. You have to find the balance between two. And so when, so we care a little for his command. So we talked a few weeks ago about how Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands, But following that verse, he tells us, you are my friends if you do what I command. So here's what I'm getting at. We have this privilege to know God as both. We are serving this almighty God who created the universe. He can count the grains of sand. It can tell you the number of the grains of sand on the earth that were on every seashore and every year and every day and every moment. How many grains of sand were on that seashore? He can tell you the exact number, right? It's the one that can count the hairs on your head, the number of stars in just the observable universe, the number of neurons in your brain. He can count them in and he knows them. He doesn't have to count them because he knows that number right now because he's all-knowing. And so sure, you must realize who God is, how powerful and holy he is, and to revere and fear him for that, but also understand that he brings us in closer to know him as father and Jesus as our brother and friend, and this is our privilege as Christians, is that yes, there must be this understanding of God is holy and so, right, just like Joseph in, in the book of Genesis, right, he, when he was about to, was trying, you know, Potiphar's wife was trying to get him to sleep with her, he said, I don't want to sin against God. It wasn't, I don't want to lose my job. It wasn't, I don't want to, you know, mess up my, my reputation with Potiphar. It wasn't any of that. It was, I don't want to sin against God. And so what did he do? With wisdom, he ran, should have took his coat, but he ran away, did not commit sin, still ended up in jail, but he didn't do it, right? So, out of this understanding is the foundation for meekness done or for wisdom done in meekness, right? For now, we have been put in our place. And this is not a bad thing, right? We always hear you got to be put in your place. Like that's not a bad thing when it comes to God because, right, he created, he is God, we are not. And so the problem many of us in our lives is that we haven't been put in our place and don't understand our place before this God. And so this is why we live foolish lives and not lives of wisdom done in meekness. So to be under submission to a holy God who should have destroyed us but instead became one of us and died in our place, he tasted death for us. To be under submission to him should be easy to do for us because we see that we did not deserve it. Now all of our actions start from this place of a servant, the place of one who used to live however and do whatever they wanted and for whatever they wanted, but is now calm, gentle, humble, and submissive. You see, you can't be the follower of Christ you're supposed to be if you don't understand that you are first and foremost a servant of God, that you are there to serve God. God is not here to serve you. He did come to serve, right, and to give his life as a ransom for many, and he did do that, but now, right, as he is our Lord, we serve him, 
we think about him. We think about what does he want, right? What is he calling us to do? And so what changed in this moment? It was Jesus, right? And it's not a cop-out or a churchy answer. No, what happened was that Jesus saved you. He saved this person, and now they're not the same. They were once dead in their sins. You were dead in your sins, and now you're alive in Christ. You once lived by the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of the world never truly led to true happiness, right? It can't answer why bad things happen to good people, right? The wisdom of man can't tell us why we were born. Then most of all, the knowledge of the world and all the wisdom of the world cannot save you. It cannot outsmart a holy God and his laws he put in place, right? Like when I, when I come up here and say, hey, we shouldn't do this, we should do that, right? It's not because I'm just saying, hey, here is a good idea, but these are the laws of God and when in the commands of God. And when we don't obey them, right, we are in rebellion to God, right? So these aren't just like, you know, uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word. These aren't just like suggestions or like a guideline, but they are the things that we must live by. And when we are not living by these things and obeying God, then we are in rebellion to God and disobedient children to our Father, right? But when you understand that, and we'll get more into this later, but when you understand your place and who you are and how you didn't deserve salvation, then you're able to live this life of meekness and wisdom and take any sort of insults, as Mark Vincent talked about earlier, because we understand we have everything we need. And so we understand that our life, my life, your life, all of history and everything we see were created first and foremost for him. God did not create the world, spin it in motion, then leave it to chance. No, everything is in his hands. Nothing is a surprise to him. Nothing is out of his control. Nothing. And so man's wisdom, right, is limited and cannot save. It cannot absolve us of our sins or help you defeat sin. Only Jesus can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can wash away your sins. Only Jesus never gave in to sin or temptation but stayed the course. Now we too can stay the course because Christ lives in us. And if Christ lives in you, then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, right? So now you can be meek and gentle in your life, not because of you, but because of Christ working in you and through you. And that's the difference, right? By man's wisdom, he can tell you, think this way, have this perspective, do this, right? But it never fixes the issue of the heart. It never fixes the issue of the motivation. And that's what I'm, I'm really working at today is like what is in your motivation? Because as we'll see, if selfish ambition and bitter jealousy are in your hearts, it's going to lead to every vile practice and a bunch of issues and a lot of things that you don't want, right? And your tongue being out of control. But when you understand that you're who you are and how God created you and you were a sinner and yet God saved you, then everything changes you're able to take whatever life throws at you because you are first and foremost a servant of the God who has everything in his control and he's going to use it and use whatever because he is good and wise and he loves you. So what happens, let's look now, what happens if we aren't under submission? James tells us, verse 14 through 16, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile 
practice. So if we aren't meek, if we don't have this wisdom, right, if we don't have this wisdom from above that Jesus in us, right, because overall James is saying, hey, do you have saving faith? Are you actually saved? Because if so, then these are things that should be working out in your life, working towards in your life, evident in your life. So if you aren't meek, if you don't have Jesus, this wisdom in your life, if it is not the basis of our lives and decisions, then we will have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And so here in this passage, right, in, in verse 14, when it says bitter jealousy, one, it's bringing back, if you go back to James, how it's like the, the salt pond. Anyways, sorry, I was like geeking out. Never mind. Regard that. So in this, right, this word jealousy means envy, right? So it just means envy. And, and it's not just like this envy, like I'm kind of envious, jealous of this person. I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of jealous. No, like this is like this deep-rooted envy in this person that makes them, right, that then becomes the motivation to do things and not do things, right, to think of people a certain way. So to help us kind of flesh it out, um, there's a great uh, devotional book called New Morning Mercies, great book by uh, this, I guess he's like, like a psychologist, Christian psychologist, Paul David Tripp, says this, envy denies grace. The assumption of envy is that we deserve what another has been given, when in fact, you and I deserve nothing. Envy is self-focused and self-righteous. It inserts you into the center of your world. It makes it all about you. It tells you that you deserve what you actually don't deserve. Envy is expectant and demanding. Envy tells you that you are someone you aren't and you are entitled to what is not rightfully yours. Envy cannot celebrate the blessing of another because it tells you that you are more deserving. Envy tells you that you have earned what you could never earn. The world of envy no more mixes with the world of grace than oil does with water. Envy forgets who you are, forgets who God is, and is confused about what life is all about. And this is such a powerful description of envy. Because the right, it says the assumption of envy is that we deserve what another has been given when in fact you and I deserve nothing. Absolutely nothing. I had a pastor friend of mine uh, when he was raising his kids uh, very, very theological, loves the Lord so much. But when he was raising his kids, uh, his daughters, he only had daughters. Um, but when he was raising them up, we would, uh, Jamie would help babysit. And so uh, it caught her off guard one time. But one of the times the kids were saying, doing something, and then the dad goes, hey, what are you, or they're like, why are you fighting this, this? Um, like, she won't give me this, she won't give me that. And he goes, okay, but like, that's your sister. And kind of walked to like, you know, creating the image of God. And he's saying, but what do you actually deserve right now? And they're like, Hell. Like straight up, that was what they're like six years old. They were already saying, what do you deserve? Hell. Okay. So is you not having this toy actually that bad? No. Okay. Then we can have a great car ride. Like, like at first it seemed crazy extreme, right? Because, right, when you look at our culture, we should only, right, the culture says, the wisdom from the world says you only deserve good. You only deserve everything. You are entitled to so much. Right, when the only thing we've ever earned, the only thing that we ever deserved in life was the fact that our wages have, were leading us to hell, to destruction. And so when you, when you understand that, right, that 
We deserve nothing, right? This goes right back to what we said earlier of how when you and I are in our right place before God and in humble submission, we don't envy. We know we deserve nothing. So if we lose out, miss out, we're okay because we still have God. He is still our master. And Tripp continues in his devotional and says this, Grace reminds you that you deserve nothing, but it does not stop there. It confronts you with the truth that God is gloriously loving, gracious, and kind, that he lavishes on us the things we could have never earned. And that's the beauty of grace, right, is that you deserved nothing. You deserve to be punished. We deserve to be punished for our sins, yet Christ came and died for us. And the same thing read in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The ways of the world, the selfish, bitter, envious ways of the world are anti-heaven, anti-Christ, anti-love. But the wisdom, the way of life from heaven is way different. Our motives aren't self-seeking anymore. We don't have a hidden objective for doing nice things to people. We can see someone else's body and be thankful for our own. We can see someone else's kid progressing faster and be thankful that we have a kid. We can see someone get the job we wanted and celebrate them. We can celebrate the engaged family member or friend instead of considering why they don't deserve it. Why? Because that's envy. And that's not meekness. Because meekness says, God, I am so thankful that they are doing that. They got that. They have that. But Lord, man, I just thank you that you saved me. Lord, I thank you that I have everything I need. Right? We talked before, Psalm 3410, it says, like, those who are seeking the Lord lack no good thing. And so if there's anything you lack in your life, obviously the Lord is saying you don't need that because if you did, I would have given it to you. And so James tells us the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And this is the starting point for us, right? Our hearts aren't filled with anything else but awe of God and his love for us. And then what flows from here, James continues. He says this, Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, meaning unwavering, shows no favoritism, kind of what we talked about before, right, showing favoritism in the church, and sincere. Another version says this, it is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. Think about it. When you are willing, unwilling to yield to others, when you are unwilling to be open to reason, when you are unwilling to be compliant, what's in your heart? Wrong motives and not purity. What is their selfish ambition, right? I got to grind. I got to do all this. And if I cut somebody out in my grind, trying to get what I want, what I deserve, what I'm supposed to have, then so be it, because obviously they're not working hard enough, right? But the believer of the Lord says, how can I count others more important than myself? How can I get my coworker to get a raise? How can I make my team look great? How can, I, how can I champion my spouse? How can I make my friends feel like a million bucks, right? How can we do this is we first must realize who we are. We must realize that we are servants of God. And the fact that we can just be a servant, and not just a servant, right? He doesn't leave us there. He says, now I call you friend. And we're sons and daughters. 
And so now it changes. And so if you, it says, who is wise and understanding among you? Those who show it by their good conduct, right? But you can't show it by your good conduct, and you can't show it and done in meekness of wisdom if you don't first and foremost have the beginning of wisdom, which is fear of the Lord, fear of God can destroy my soul and my body, but also this respect for him, knowing that he is God and we are not, but then realizing it too, that he now lives in us. Holy Spirit resides in us. Jesus in us. Christ in you, right? The hope of glory is what it says. And so when we have wrong motives and not purity in our hearts, we have lost sight of who God is and who we are. And so closing out, told you, told you, told you. James finishes with this, verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. At first, this passage can seem a little weird, weird words, not really sure what it's saying, can seem a little daunting, but there's a theologian named Douglas Moo who helps us understand what he's saying. He says, righteousness in James 1.20, right, meant that conduct which is pleasing to God, and this is the fruit intended here also. It includes all the virtues listed in verse 17, right, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and is the opposite, as we have suggested, of every evil practice. This righteousness cannot be produced in the context of human anger, but it can grow and flourish in the atmosphere of peace. Those who create such an atmosphere are assured by their Lord of their reward. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9. And so the message version of the Bible, which is a good commentary. I don't recommend it for a, your daily read, but it's good commentary. Eugene Peterson was an amazing pastor. Says this. This is the translation of verse 18. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. Love what he said there. But peace here, right, in the church Peace in your home, peace in your workplace, all stems from how you see yourself and how you see God. So do you want to be wise and meek, as James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Then you must fear God. You must start there at the basis and understand that you deserve nothing. God did not have to save any of us. God did not have to save you. It wasn't like... I, it wasn't like, oh, I got to get Kai. I need him on my team, like, or else it's, the whole thing's going to mess up. Like, no, like, when I look at my salvation, it's much more like, God, why would you save me? Lord, you know the thoughts of my heart. Lord, you know my tendencies. You know my proclivities. Lord, you know what goes through my heart and my mind and how wicked I am. Why would you save me? Why would you make me a pastor? And then I think, man, he, because he loved me and because he wanted to show that if he could save Kai, he could save anybody. That if he could change Kai's heart that was once running after the ways of the world, living by the ways of, of human wisdom, living out of selfish ambition, not putting others before me, living out of envy, not able to celebrate others, not thinking that I deserved all this stuff then he could save anybody from those same thoughts. 
we must fear him, love him, think on him, remind ourselves how amazing he is and praise him always. One of my favorite Christian authors, his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, says this about community. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. So if you're right, looking, when I when we talk about people about finding a place in a church, is like, I need to find this type of church, this type of community, and get this from them. And if I don't get this, and it's not the right community for me, and it's like, you're missing out on the whole point, which is you show up and you love those around you, coming from the place of, man, God loved me, the chief of sinners. God loved me, the one that didn't deserve anything good, and yet he continues to bless me over and over and over and over and over again. And then we can find peace in living grace. You can find peace in your home, peace in your job, peace amongst your friends. Because you will not find community if you aren't meek, willing to yield, peaceable in submission to the Lord. And until you lay down what you think community should look like, lay it down and instead of just choose to love those around you, which in turn is obeying God our Father and showing that we are the one who is wise and understanding, showing it in our good conduct done in the meekness of wisdom. And so, look at that. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying Him and making disciples who make disciples.